how God was seeking a bride for his son. Each book is different from every other book. I'm trying to give you the keys for you to unlock it for yourself. You're listening to Unlocking the Bible by David Pawson. Visual materials featured in this talk can be found online at davidpawson.org. This is Revelation Part 6, The Descending Bride. I didn't quite finish what I wanted to say about the millennium in the last talk, so I'm just going to take the first few minutes just to give you how many? Seven, eight reasons why I'm what's called a classic premillennialist. That's the view held by the early church for centuries that Jesus is coming back to reign on this old earth for a thousand years to demonstrate what it could be like. Here are my eight reasons for holding that view. Number one, it is the most natural explanation or interpretation of Revelation 20. Others have to move the chapter around and force it to mean different meanings, but taken in its plainest, simplest sense, I believe leads you to that view. Second, it gives the most positive reason for Jesus coming back and bringing us back and that is to do a job down here and to reign over this world. It is the premillennial view that puts the coming of Christ in the same position that it had in the early church. 318 times the New Testament tells us to look forward to his coming and you'll find it's always the premillennials who talk most about the coming of Jesus and look forward to it. Thirdly, It explains the emphasis on his coming in the New Testament and the excitement and the hope of it. Otherwise, if he wasn't coming back to reign, our hope would be centred in heaven, not on his return to earth. Fifth, it earths our future destiny. Heaven is only a waiting room, it's not our permanent home. We go there to be with Jesus when we die until we come back here to live with him and reign with him here. And our future home beyond that is not heaven, but the new earth, as we shall see in chapter 21 and 22. It earths us. The Son and the Spirit have been here on earth, the Father's going to be. Six, it, it is a realistic view. It's neither optimistic nor pessimistic. The optimists say the church is going to establish the kingdom on earth I don't believe it, that's too optimistic. The pessimists say you'll never see it on earth any more than you see it now. Well, that's pessimistic. My realism says we will see it on earth but not till Jesus gets back. Until then things can get worse but then they will get much better. Seven, it has fewer problems than the other views. All the views have some problems, some questions which we can't answer but this has the fewest of them. And finally, it matters to me that the early church held this view for so long before it got messed up and the fact that uh, for 400 years at least the early church unanimously held that view weighs quite heavily with me. They were the nearest to the apostles and therefore the most likely to have understood what they said. Now we've got to the end of Revelation, we've got to the end of the book the sixth and seven vision are now what concern us. We've seen that at the end of the millennium Satan is released to 
as it were, try and take over the world again to prove that there are still people who, in spite of the perfect conditions of world government under Christ, still want freedom from him, don't want to be under Christian rule, and the devil will persuade them that they'd be better off without this Christian government and without Christ. And as we've seen, he will march on Jerusalem. He and that great army, Gog and Magog, they are called at that stage. If you read Ezekiel 39, you'll understand why. Gog and Magog march on Jerusalem and are burnt with fire from heaven. And then it says, Satan is thrown into the lake of fire where the Antichrist and the false prophet already are, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever and ever and ever. It's a literal translation. Now then, that's the one verse in Scripture that is the death blow to this modern view called annihilationism, that we go into oblivion. And those who are teaching annihilation, which is now the majority of evangelical and charismatic teachers in this country, always avoid quoting that verse because no verse could be clearer. Here are two human beings and the devil being tormented without rest day and night unto the ages of the ages. Nothing could be clearer than that. And since Jesus said to the goats on the sheep and the, in the sheep and the goats teaching which he gave, said to the goats, depart from me, you cursed, into the punishment prepared for the devil and all his angels, which means that human beings can find themselves in the same place and in the same condition. Well now, after that, after that, all the dead are raised, whether they've died on land or in the sea or wherever, whatever's left of their body, they are raised to life and given new bodies because those who go to hell go with bodies. Jesus talked about don't fear those who can kill you and do nothing more, fear him who can throw body and soul into hell. And hell is a place, a real place for people with bodies. And the dead are given new bodies, all of them. The resurrection of the whole human race, righteous or wicked, is clearly taught in Daniel 12, in John 5, in uh, Acts 22, where Paul said, I'm on trial because I believe in the resurrection of the righteous and the wicked. Resurrection will happen to everybody, but there will be two resurrections a thousand years apart. But everybody will be raised from the dead and given a body to stand before the great white throne. On that throne is not God. It doesn't say God is on the throne, it says Him who is on the throne. Well, who else could it possibly be? We know from Acts 17 and Paul's teaching on Mars Hill in Athens that God has appointed a man to judge the world. One of ourselves will decide our eternal destiny. God is not going to decide on that day. He has appointed a man to judge the world. That's the answer to those who think God wouldn't be fair. There's a, a little monologue, I can't recite it all and I can't remember it all, but it envisages a huge crowd standing on a plane and there's a, 
a judge sitting on a throne in front of them and people are shouting from the crowd, you don't know what it's like to be born illegitimate, you don't know what it's like to be a slave, you don't know what it's like to be unjustly arrested for a crime you never committed, you don't know what it's like to be homeless, you don't know what it's like to be under pressures of temptation. And then the crowd falls silent when they realise the man on the throne knows all about that. It's a comfort to us that Jesus is the judge of all the earth. He has been appointed that. A human being will be on the great white throne and the whole human race will be judged according to books. A book will be open for each person. I can tell you the title of it. It's got a red cover and it's gold letters and it says, This is your life. <laughs> At least that's my guess. But written in each of those books will be everything that person has done and said and thought and felt. And I tell you, if that book is open for me, I'm damned. And so would you be. And those books will be open to show people that even the best of people have their problems. Jesus said, what has been hidden in the bedchamber will be shouted from the rooftops that day or be made public. Books will be opened. You know that program, I like watching This Is Your Life. It's nice because they only choose the nice bits. <laughs> the researchers open a can of worms, you know, time and time again, but they don't put it on the program. But you'll get the full program on this day. And frankly, when any human being has a book open with the full record in it, that human being will be silenced. Fortunately, there's another book going to be opened and it's called the Book of Life because it's the book of Jesus' life, the one book that you can read right through. You ever heard the saying, you can read his life like a book? Well, you can with Jesus. There's nothing wrong in it. And the beauty of it is that those who are in Christ on that day their names are in his book, not their own. <laughs> that lovely? And that's where your name needs to be on that day, not in your own book, but in his. And that's why we said the book of Revelation was written, to make sure that on that great day, your name will still be in that book. Because in both the Hebrew and the Greek language, the word faith and the word faithfulness are exactly the same word. To have faith is to be faithful. It's to go on believing whatever it costs, whatever happens. Faith is not one step of faith and here's your ticket to heaven. It's a life of remaining faithful to Jesus, staying with him, trusting him whatever happens. However black the situation is, yet will I trust him. That's why Habakkuk was told the righteous will survive by keeping faith. The just will live by faith. You could say the just will live by faithfulness, by keeping faith, by going on to the end, believing in Jesus. If we in the church had kept all those who once walked in faith, church would be about five times the size it is now. But there are many who've gone back and are in danger. You need to pray for backsliders that they don't reach the point of no return. 
when their name is scraped off the parchment. Well, those are the books that will be opened. And because of the evidence in those books, perfect justice will be done and will be seen to be done. The human race finishes in two groups and only two, those who live under the rule of God and those who don't want to, want to live their own way. Well now from there we have this lake of fire mentioned. I'm not going to speak a lot about it. I've written a book about it called The Road to Hell. I've got a chapter in there about heaven too, so if you want to know about both, there it is. But I wrote that book because so many are now teaching that hell is not to be feared, it's just oblivion. Who fears that? If I've lived a whole lifetime of sin, vice and crime and then I'm told it's oblivion for you, I'd shout hallelujah, wouldn't you? Got away with it, won't ever have to pay. That's not what the Bible says. But it's now swept through Britain like a prairie fire, this idea of annihilation rather than suffering. Much nicer, but uh, I notice that those who believe this rarely preach it because frankly it doesn't have that much effect on people. It's the fear of hell that relates very much to the fear of God. I've got a photograph here. No, I'll show it to you later because there's another one I don't want you to see and it's on the same card, so I'll show them both together. It's a photograph of Mount Etna in Sicily. When I flew back from Sicily once, the uh, British Airways plane flew right over the top, quite low, over Mount Etna and it was erupting. There was a river of red-hot lava going down to a village about two miles away and he tipped the plane right up. So I was looking straight down into this boiling cauldron of red-hot molten rock and I tell you, I thought of hell. <laughs> Lake of fire, sea of flames. I was jolly glad when he levelled the plane and we headed off for <laughs> London because it was just down below us and I knew something about the turbulence of the air above those things. I was willing to say, keep going, keep going. I don't want to land up down there. But it is a reminder to us, our God is a consuming fire, therefore let us worship him with awe and reverence. It's a note you missed today, an awful lot of familiarity with God a lot of palliness with God, but the awe and reverence that you're standing on the edge of a volcano, that's the sense we should have about Almighty God. Remembering the books, that book of your life in which everything is going down. You know, you never forget anything, did you know that? You may have problems remembering it, but you never forget it. And sometimes a smell can bring back a whole load of memories from childhood. Have you noticed that? As if a drawer has been pulled open and it's all there, it's all there, but it's all in the books up there. And if your name is not in the book of life, that's the book that will be opened. And frankly, you'll have nothing to say. Well, after that, we have heaven and hell. Or not quite. It's a pity that we only talk about heaven because it isn't heaven, it's a new heaven and a new earth, which means a new space out there and a new planet earth, because heaven and earth simply refers to what we call this planet and space. And there's to be a new universe, a brand new universe. God is going to make a whole new universe. When people ask me, what business are you in? I love to say I'm in the recycling business. And they say, oh, they usually smile, uh, paper, Metal? 
Bottles? No, people. Because it's people who cause the pollution. And I'm in the business of recycling people because God is. And if any man is in Christ, there is the new creation. And what is happening, whereas in the first creation, God made the heavens and the earth first and people last, in the new creation in which we now are, we are in the eighth day of creation. That's why we worship on the eighth day, Sunday, not as a day of rest, but because God's gone back to work and he's making all things new. And the first part of the old creation he made new was the body of his son. And he's now making new men and women and then we'll make a new heaven and a new earth for them to live in. And the gospel is really, God is going to recycle the whole of the universe and you can live in it provided you're willing to be recycled now. And recycling is the modern word for salvaging. That was the old word that we used to use. And salvaging is the word salvation. What the gospel is, is you can be recycled and live in a recycled planet Earth with a recycled space around you. That's the heart of the gospel. It's a gospel not just to get people to heaven, it's a gospel about a new earth and a new heaven and a whole new universe for new people in Christ. That's the real heart of the gospel. I find if you present the gospel as a recycling business, people will listen. But not everybody's willing to be recycled, are they? But God says, behold, I make all things new. Not all people, all things. He's going to make a new planet Earth. And you're going to live in it if you're willing to be recycled now. That's the heart of the gospel. It's a gospel that centers on the future. Now then, the focus quickly shifts from the new heaven and the new earth to the maker of the new heaven and the new earth. And a loud voice is heard, Behold, I make all things new. And then he sees a new city come down out of space to planet Earth. A huge city it would only just fit inside the moon if the moon were hollow. It would stretch from about Paris to Warsaw. That's about the size of it. And not just one way, it's cubed, about 1,500 miles cubed. It's a gigantic city. You know, they're getting so excited about building a tiny little city up in space, but Jesus is already doing it. He'd gone back to carpentry. He said, I'm going to prepare a place for you. And that whole thing is going to come down to a new earth and land here. I'm really looking forward to seeing it. I'm fascinated in architecture. I design churches, as some of you know, and um, I've thought, how can this huge city be a homely place, a man-scale, a human-scale place? I've studied places like Canberra and Brasilia. Interestingly enough, they always dam up a stream to make a river through the middle of the city when they build a new city today. The, ought to be a river down the middle of the city, and there was in the New Jerusalem too. Uh, I once said, I'm dying to see it, and somebody said, you will. <laughs> but uh, I really am looking forward to seeing this city whose builder and maker is God. You know, when Abraham left a brick-built house with central heating and running water in the house, we know that because the houses of Ur of the Chaldees have been excavated. They were very advanced, and he left that comfortable brick-built home and he lived in a tent for the rest of his life at the age of 80. Now that's not what many retired people would do. But it said he was looking for a city whose builder and maker was God. 
He was looking for this new Jerusalem. It's going to be the most perfectly planned city where everybody feels, oh, I'd just love to live there forever. <laughs> and it's coming down out of heaven to land on earth. It's going to be made of the most precious materials. And now I will show you the photograph I've got because here is an absolute proof that the Bible is inspired by God. How can I prove that? Well, John sees the city and he sees the materials from which it's made. Precious stones now to us will be common materials there. We have gems and jewels now. You ladies love them and now we men are getting into them, unfortunately. But uh, <laughs> these precious jewels are of two different kinds. It's only been discovered since we've been able to produce pure light like laser light and cross-polarized light. But when you take a very thin slice of the jewels that you ladies wear and we put pure light through it, one of two things will happen. Either it will become all the colors of the rainbow, whatever color it was to start with, red or green or blue, or it will go black as coal and lose all its color. And we call the ones that turn into all the rainbow colors anisotropic and we call the ones that lose all their color isotropic. I have bad news for some of you ladies. Pearls are isotropic, not pearls, diamonds are isotropic and rubies are isotropic and garnets are isotropic so there's no point in taking them with you. <laughs> they will lose all their attraction. But the 12 precious stones which John saw in the New Jerusalem are all anisotropic. And there they are. Those 12 stones are the New Jerusalem materials and they all turn into all the colors of the rainbow. These are just tiny fragments, a thousandth of an inch. And look at the colors under a microscope. But here's your diamond and your ruby and your garnets. They're no good in pure light. Now that's only been discovered in the last 30 years. How could John the Apostle know which stones would do that in pure light? There's no way he could have known unless God who made the stones revealed it to Jesus, who revealed it to the Spirit, who revealed it to the angel, who revealed it to John. And there's my proof that this book is the Word of God because <laughs> only God knew that 2,000 years ago. Amazing how science catches up with the Bible, isn't it? Well now there's a serious note all the way through these last chapters. The serious note is this, it's constant mention of the lake of fire. Here we are in the last part of the good news, we're reading a chapter in which, isn't it interesting, nobody ever argues about the good news in Revelation. All the arguments center on other things but nobody argues about the new Jerusalem or the new heaven and the new earth. They read it at funerals regularly. This is what we're looking forward to. Well, if you read the whole chapter 21 and 22, time and again there's a warning there. There's a lake of fire outside this city. There's that photograph of Mount Etna. There's a lake of fire as well. It's not part of that new city at all, it's outside. It's for the dogs, it says. And here is the final warning in uh, chapter 21. It says, he who overcomes will inherit all this, but the cowardly and the unfaithful and the immoral and the deceitful 
lake of fire. Now, it's not talking about the unbeliever here. It's the cowardly believer and the unfaithful believer and the deceitful and the immoral believer that this is addressing. And it's saying, don't think you'll be part of all this and get away with that. It would be totally unfair of God to send anybody here as an unbeliever for being like that, but to say to a believer, it's all right, it doesn't matter if you're like that, you can come here. Wouldn't that be unfair of God? And yet I'm afraid there are many who think that they can live any way they like because they've got their ticket to heaven. It's not true. We need more than forgiveness to get to heaven. We need holiness as well. Without holiness, no man will see the Lord. It's there in Scripture. It's a serious book. It's the book of Revelation. It's a wonderful book and it promises all this, that new heaven and the new earth, the new Jerusalem. Now, here's perhaps the most startling thing in these last few pages. It is that we don't go to heaven to be with God forever. He is coming to earth to be with us forever. The angel is astonished. When the new Jerusalem comes down from heaven, the angel knows that's not only going to be the dwelling place of God's people, it's going to be the dwelling place of God himself and the Lamb. And therefore the angel utters an ejaculation, Behold! In Welsh, look you! It, 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 it means, look at that, look at that! The dwelling place of God is with men. Not the dwelling place of men is with God. The astonishment is the angel cries out, Look! The dwelling place of God is with men and he will dwell with them and they will be his people and he'll be their God. Isn't that a thought? Never again will you say, Our Father who art in heaven. You say, Our Father who art with us in, on earth. It is God who moves house at the end of the Bible. Now his Son has been on the earth and his Spirit has been on the earth and way, way, way back at the very beginning, God was on earth. Adam heard the sounds of his footsteps. Where? Taking an evening stroll in the Garden of Eden. That's how it's going to be again. Father's coming to live here on a recycled earth. Isn't that incredible? We don't go to be with him. He wants to be with us. And in that new recycled universe, planet Earth will be the very centre of it all, the very heart of it all, as God intended it to be. This is the very focus of his love. And we will live in that city with the Lamb and with God the Father. And it says, we shall actually see God's face. What will it look like? I guess, just like Jesus, his son. Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. Well, we've come to the end of our study, but I want now to give you ten reasons for studying the book of Revelation. And then we're through. At the end of the book, of course, is an epilogue with invitations, pleading, if anyone is thirsty, come and drink. Come, come, come. And Jesus constantly invites people to come and be part of all this right at the end. But there's another come right at the end and it's even so come.
Come quickly, Lord. Finishes with two comes. Come to the people. Come. You can have it all. Free gift. Come. And the people respond, come. The bride says, come to the bridegroom. Well, here are the ten reasons. Number one, it is the completion of the Bible. It's the vital climax. Without this, the story doesn't have an ending. It's, it would be like reading a novel, a detective novel, and finding the last ten pages have been torn out. Here is the finished story, the ultimate end to history, the end to the romance of God, because Jesus is the Alpha and the Omega. He was there helping with the creation of our universe. He'll be there at the end. Secondly, it's a defense against heresy. There are many cults and sects knocking at your door, and they all know the book of Revelation very well. And they find in the average churchgoer someone who doesn't know the book of Revelation, and therefore they start telling them. We know this book and we'll tell you. Somebody has asked me about the 144,000. Well, Jehovah's Witnesses make an awful lot of that figure. I didn't actually mention it, but it's a figure that's mentioned twice in chapter 7. It refers to Jews protected on earth during the big trouble. Four chapters later, it refers to Christian martyrs in heaven. It's not the same 144,000, but there's a simple explanation. But you see, cults and sects trade on the ignorance of the average churchgoer of the book of Revelation. But when you know it better than they do, then you can answer them and you can tell them to come and take part in it. Otherwise, they get most of their converts from ignorant church people who don't know the book of Revelation. So it's a proof, a defense against heresy. Thirdly, it will give you an interpretation of history which will enable you to read your daily newspaper with understanding. Whenever I've taken a group of Christians through the book of Revelation, they have smothered me with cuttings from newspapers and magazines. It happens with this book like no other. Have you seen this, David, in the paper this week? Have you seen this? They see the foreshadowings of all this already happening. It makes sense and we realize that it really is the way it's all going and that God has everything under control. What a comfort when you read all the disasters. Jesus said when you hear of wars and rumors of wars and Famines, cheer up, it's not the end, it's the beginning. Lift up your heads for your redemption draws nigh. Christians have a totally different reaction. It's not that they're unsympathetic with victims of these disasters, but they know it's going to happen. And they see it as the birth pangs of a new universe, not as the death pains of our present world, but the birth pains of the new one. And so we have a different reaction. It gives us... Um, an interpretation of history and therefore a ground of hope because when you know what's going to happen, you know that Jesus is going to win. We have a solid hope for the future that holds us even in the present. You can't live just on faith and love. You need hope as an anchor to your soul when the going gets bad. Our hope is centered. Our blessed hope is the return of Jesus Christ to planet earth. Christ will defeat Satan. Saints will rule the world. The whole universe will be recycled. The kingdom will come on earth as it is in heaven. That's my hope, but it's not just I hope so. It's I know so. 
God has never broken a promise, and Jesus is the yes to every promise God has made. Fifth, what a motive for evangelism Revelation gives you to get as many people in as possible before all this wind-up happens. Do you know why God is delaying the return of Jesus? 2 Peter tells you, second letter of Peter, it's because he wants as many as possible to repent. He's only holding it all off to give us a maximum chance. He wants the gospel to reach every ethnic group before the end comes. What a motive for evangelism. Six, a stimulus to worship. You must have realised as we read the songs in Revelation, the songs of heaven, you want to join them, you want to worship. Got a lovely recording at home of angels singing and it just makes you want to join in, except that you'd spoil it. <laughs> I'm so glad we can't hear them normally or we, we'd just stop and listen, we wouldn't worship. But oh, the worship of Revelation, it's a stimulus to worship. Time and again, when I've been in a place where they've said, open worship, you can pray or sing or read the Bible. Again and again people have read Revelation 5 or Revelation 4 and it's led into worship. Next, it is an antidote to worldliness because it keeps your mind looking forward to a new world. We are really the new age. I, I, I resent other people colouring that term. We are the new age. We're looking forward to the new age. It's not the age of Aquarius or whoever, it's the age of Jesus Christ, Lord. What an in incentive to godliness it is. I think some of you have felt it even today, that it stirs you to be ready, to have nothing to be ashamed of on that day when the books are opened. It stirs you up. Whoever has this hope purifies himself, says John in one of his letters, if you believe that you will be like Jesus when he appears, you will press on after that already. It's one thing that my wife has very difficult, great difficulty believing. She has strong faith in many areas, but not in this one. It's when I tell her that one day her husband will be perfect. <laughs> and uh, she will tell you if she bases that on experience, she couldn't believe it, but she's wisely taught she doesn't base her faith on experience but on the Word of God. And that's the promise that we shall be like him when he appears. We shall look at each other and say, which is Jesus? They've all got the same expression, the same eyes. If you believe in that, that's a real incentive to press on, to be holy as he is holy, to be godly. It's a preparation for persecution. I believe persecution is coming to our land as it's come to about 200 nations and states in our world already. Christians are suffering in many, many parts. The one promise that Jesus made was that before the end you will be hated by all nations, all nations. That has never actually been true for 2,000 years, but it's nearer being true now than it ever was and we need to be ready. And if there's one thing gets people ready for persecution, it's studying Revelation because it was written for that very purpose. And finally, it gives you a balanced understanding of Christ. If you only know the Christ of the Gospels, you don't know Christ fully, or even of the Epistles as well. You see, in the Gospels, Christ is presented as the prophet 
a prophet who died for his people. In the epistles, Christ is presented as our present priest, whoever lives to make intercession for us. And I did enjoy recently preaching on the Ascension on Ascension Day because it's on a Thursday, most people overlook it. But it's necessary for us that he is our priest in heaven, but in Revelation he's the king. And we need to get this whole thing in balance, to get the whole picture of Jesus, all his titles, all his 250 titles, and especially the ones in Revelation. We need them all to have a full picture of Jesus and a balanced understanding of who he is. He's the Alpha and Omega, the Lion of Judah, the Lamb that was slain. He's the first and the last. He's the true and faithful witness. He's the King of kings and Lord of lords. All of those are in the book of Revelation and all help to fill out the picture. This is not a meek and mild Jesus. This is Jesus, the, the man, as Pilate said. Behold the man, yet the man who was God. To get this balanced view, Revelation gives a serious side of Jesus, a frightening side of Jesus, but it helps to balance out the rather weak view of Jesus that so many have. This is a Jesus who will not stop until he's put this world right. Many are disappointed with him and say, he came 2,000 years ago and the world's still in a mess. Ah, but they need to hear about his second coming. And after that, the world will not be in a mess. It will be under the rule of heaven and the kingdom of God will come again on earth. Even so, come, Lord Jesus. You have been listening to David Pawson's Unlocking the Bible. Visual materials featured in this talk and other free resources like this can be found online at davidpawson.org.